Hi, this is Ben Lowell of Back to the Bible of Canada. During today's program, we'll finish our current New Year's series, Remembering the Second Coming of Jesus. So let's listen to this final message from Dr. John Newfeld called, He is Coming Soon, all based on our text in Revelation chapter 22, verses 6 to 21. It's now been over 1,900 years since John wrote the vision contained in the book of Revelation. It's been a long time. One day on Back to the Bible, I'm going to go through a series in which we'll cover the entire book. See, I find Revelation to be a fascinating study. Of course, as you know, it's also the book that many Christians disagree about. But today, I simply want to read verses 6 to 21 of chapter 22, the last chapter in our Bible. Let me start with verse 6. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Now, we have seen as we've gone through this brief study in end times that from the perspective of the New Testament, with the coming of Jesus, a new era has begun. And so from the first until the second coming of Jesus, this is the end times. But Revelation promises more. It says that the events spoken of in this book must soon take place. Now, I know in our study of 2 Peter, we saw that with the Lord, a thousand years is but one day. But it's not that for us. So how can Revelation promise a series of events that must soon take place when indeed we have not arrived there yet after all this period of time? I want to make a statement about the book of Revelation that might surprise some. The book of Revelation is addressed or written to seven churches, all of which were then located in the province of Asia Minor, or what would now be called the nation of Turkey. When John wrote this letter, he was exiled on the island of Patmos, which was on the Mediterranean off the coast of Turkey, and this book would have been delivered to the seven churches he addresses. The seven churches which he addresses would be Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. All seven of them are geographically in a circle. So whoever delivered the letter would have gone from church to church in the order indicated, following a circle and reading the letter to each church in turn. And each church would have heard the words at the beginning of the book in 1 verse 1, which reads, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And then in the last chapter, in 22 verse 6, those words get repeated again, what must soon take place. Now, if you're hearing those words being read, you would expect that the things in the book would happen, well, in your lifetime. That's the normal way of reading it. Now, here's my statement, the one I promised that that would surprise people. The things in the book of Revelation are written to the churches that John addresses. Now, you might say, how's that surprising? But many people reading the book don't think about that. And so, for instance, we all know that if we are to understand a book like, for instance, the book of Philippians, we would first start out and ask, what did this mean to the Christians living 2,000 years ago in Philippi? And then once having discovered that, we're ready to apply that to our lives. Now, we know that's how Bible study is to be done, but somehow, when we read Revelation, we've been in this habit of throwing that pattern of Bible study out. Well, you might ask, what are you getting at? Well, I'm going to argue that the book of Revelation speaks to people 2,000 years ago, and it predicts events at the end of the world at the same time. On the one hand, the things must soon take place that did take place back then. And on the other hand, we still await for those things to take place in the future. 
So as we read the book, it's right to read of the great prostitute Babylon in chapter 17, drunk on the blood of saints, and see this for what it would have appeared like to those people in those seven churches. This was a depiction of the monstrous Roman Empire who had become drunk on the blood of martyrs in the first century. The souls of those slain who were under the altar, depicted in Revelation 6, are those who gave up their lives for the gospel in the face of Roman persecution. The beast who demanded that all worship him in Revelation 17 really is a picture of the Roman emperor Domitian, who demanded to be worshipped as Lord and God, and who murdered thousands upon thousands of Christians. In one sense, the book of Revelation is a subversive document which declares that Jesus Christ is Lord alone and not the Roman emperor Domitian. The ones who in Revelation 12 verse 11, who did not love their own lives even unto death, are those who are sealed by God and are elect of Christ. They are the ones in the seven churches who fought the Lord's wars and won. The book of Revelation is, at the very same time as it speaks to people many years ago, also a futuristic document. What happened 2,000 years ago mirrors an event like it which will yet happen in the future. Daniel saw that when he saw a little horn arising out of the ten horns, somehow out of the fall of Rome could arise another like these antichrist beasts who ruled Rome. The Roman Empire has now fallen. Rome gave way to Constantinople, and eventually the city of Rome was sacked. Those events were followed by the Dark Ages in Europe, and some of you who know your history well will remember stories of the corruption of the church. At one point in time, there were actually two different popes, both excommunicating each other and condemning each other as false, and and I actually tend to think both of them were right. And by the time of the 16th century, the church was busy raising vast amounts of money by using every bit of trickery and deceit. They taxed civil governments. They sold everything from splinters of the cross of Jesus to church pardons, guaranteeing your entrance into heaven. The average priest in those days had never read one single line of scripture in his life, never held a Bible in his hands, never even heard a single verse of the Bible read. All he ever preached was church canon law. The church was not only in darkness, it actually perpetuated the darkness. But the light of the gospel never stopped shining. The church forbade any lay person to have or even read a Bible. But John Wycliffe translated the Bible into English, and in wrath, the church had his bones dug up after his death and burned for the crime of translating the Bible so that the average person could read it for himself or for herself. John Huss, that evangelical preacher from Bohemia, was lured by the church to come to Constance to discuss his views being promised safe conduct. When he got there, he realized he had been tricked. He was immediately arrested by church leaders and eventually burned at the stake. His crime was that he had proclaimed that Jesus alone had the right to be the head of the church and that the Bible, not the church hierarchy, ought to direct the church life. In fact, the persecuted church of Revelation had become a persecuting church that tormented all her foes, both those who were false teachers and those who were faithful to the truth. What a horrible history once engulfed the church. Would she survive? In 1517, a German monk named Martin Luther spurred on the Protestant Reformation by nailing his demands for change on the door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany. He had started to read the book of Romans and realized that one would be saved by faith and by faith alone. 
The sacraments could not save. The church could not save. Only Christ could save. By the 1700s, great revivals were sweeping Europe and also North America. By the 1800s, the world missionary movement had begun, and the last century saw the greatest advancement of the gospel in its entire history. In fact, the 20th century saw Christendom, that form of Christianity that that wedded politics and religion, fall into ruin in that century. In its place has come a worldwide Christian movement that has launched the church now again, often as a persecuted people again, but now as a people who face persecution and victoriously preach the gospel. Slowly, the church is returning to the same scenario that had been there when John wrote to the seven churches in Revelation. Surely the words of Jesus have come true. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Are we close to the coming of Christ today? Well, many will say yes. They point out that the gospel is being heard and believed in places in the world today that we would have thought impossible even a hundred years ago. They point out that we're very close now to having a Bible available, not only in every major language, but every small tribal language on the face of the earth. They point out the phenomenal amount of underground churches all over the earth. I know I've met with many pastors in that kind of environment. See, people also mention that the the world of today is unique. There has never been a time like our time. They point out to rising world population rates, the awful horror of nuclear weapons, the effects of globalization, and on and on it goes. But I, for my part, want to make no predictions. For I do not know the plans of God in this regard. And anyone who says they do, well, they're wrong. But if there ever was a time to pay attention to the message in Revelation, it's now. It does seem that the churches 2,000 years ago, those seven churches, seem so very much like the church of today. The book of Revelation provides us with a fascinating insight into what will take place at the end of the age when Christ returns. From this passage, Dr. Neufeld has given us a great introduction into how we can interpret the Apostle John's vision of chapter 22 in a more clear and relevant way. Jesus is coming soon. The gospel is spreading as never before in our world, and we must take heed of these words. When we come back, we'll discover how the prophecy revealed to John helps us prepare for living in expectation of the Lord's return. Thanks so much for joining us today, and we hope you've had a relaxing and enjoyable time to ring in the first day of the new year. 2015 has come and gone, and so much has been accomplished through your partnership at Back to the Bible Canada. We continue to hear from listeners all across the country with their feedback about this program, and it's been so overwhelmingly encouraging and positive. Year after year, you can be assured that we'll never shy away from the mission of faithful Bible teaching and engagement. And a special thanks to all of our valued partners who were able to make a special gift to the ministry this Christmas. We could not do it without you. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. Let's look again at Revelation 22, verses 6 and 7. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. 
and behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. It is true that there is a special blessing attached to the book of Revelation. Back in Revelation 1 verse 3, we were told, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. And I have no doubt that the one reading the book aloud was the one chosen to stand before one of the churches or the seven churches addressed in this book, and it was addressed as a blessing to those hearing the words being read. But it also seems reasonable from that to assume the same blessing applies today. To the one who reads and teaches this book, there is a blessing, and to the one listening, there is a blessing. But isn't that true of all the Bible books? Well, yes, it is. But it is especially mentioned here, and we need to pay attention. A very special blessing is given to the one who is paying attention to this book. I remember as a little boy living with the expectation of Christmas, and some of you remember the same things. I mean, some nights I wouldn't be able to sleep. I knew the events were close at hand, and it filled my mind and my imagination with joy and expectancy. I think this book builds that expectation. So let's move to verses 8 and 9. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. See, John made a critical error here. For the second time in this book, he falls prey to the temptation to fall before an angel and begin to worship. First time that's recorded is in chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. Since the worship of angels is forbidden, and since John knows it and is himself committed to the first two commands of the Ten Commandments, why should John fall into this error again? Well, all of us have heard of people who have fallen prey to the trap of angel worship. After all, angels are kind of hot today, and many people in the world would rather talk about angels than the God who made them. But that problem is only the tip of the iceberg. I want you to understand that there's always a danger for Christians to worship and experience rather than God. I have seen some Christians worshiping a local church. Some Christians become so enamored with what God has done in their own denominations and the history of their denomination that it becomes for them more important than the worship of God. I've also seen some Christians who discover a truth in the Scripture and then fall down and worship that truth at the exclusion of all others. The lesson is simple. Don't allow yourself to worship anything but God and understand the value of angels is only as servants of God. John's problem was not with angels, but with understanding the value of angels, and for that matter, the value of all the servants of God. Angels are God's messengers. Fellow believers are those he'll spend eternity with. They're not God and they're not worthy of worship, but that does not mean that we should despise them. We rejoice with how God uses them. Now, let's move forward to verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Now, two things demand our attention. First, the book of Daniel mentions the idea of sealing a book. In the end of Daniel, in chapter 12, verse 9, Daniel is told, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. There it seems to indicate that the visions that Daniel had seen would not be understood in his time, and the things he predicted were yet some distance away. But not so in the book of Revelation. That's because of many of the images, the ones I've already mentioned, and others were at hand. 
The dragon John spoke of in Revelation, the depiction of Satan was already defeated by Christ's cross, and the servants of the Lamb had already overcome the dragon by the word of God and by the word of their testimony and by the fact they did not love their lives unto death. Satan's great weapon, death, lay defeated before the empty tomb of Jesus. The great conflict the church was engaged in is the same conflict we're engaged in today, and we, just like they, have already overcome. The words of Revelation, even though they deal with one last cosmic battle at the end of time, only reflect the ongoing cosmic battle we're all engaged in. The second issue John addresses in these verses is that statement again, the time is near. And by now, we should be reading these words uh, with an immediate and a long-term context. The time of persecution and the victory of believers was near, but the second coming of Jesus is also near. The end of all things is near. I hope that as we're now in a new year, we'll live with the expectation that Christ may return at any time. The time is near. So what do we do with that? Well, verses 11 to 15 give us the answer. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the gates." Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. See, at this point in the book of Revelation, it does present us with a bit of a conundrum. We're not surprised that it tells those who do right to keep on doing right and those who are holy to keep on being holy. But the book also counsels those who are wrong and those who are vile to carry on as well. I mean, why this strange counsel? At first reading, it seems to tell us to just to go on living as we always have been. It seems not to care about reaching out to seekers and those who do not yet know Christ. But some further study will reveal a very different, even opposing meaning. First of all, I want you to notice who is outside the city, that is, the New Jerusalem. John mentions the dogs. You know, the term dog actually comes from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 23, 17 to 18 states, No Israelite man or woman is to become a shrine prostitute. You must not bring the earnings of a female prostitute or a male prostitute, and there it means dog, into the house of the Lord your God to pay any vow because the Lord your God detests them both. See, male shrine prostitutes were often involved in adultery, homosexual relationships, and pagan temple rituals, and the term dog is a term that encompasses both sexual perversion and false worship. Why then are those who are vile told to keep being vile? Again, this passage mirrors the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah counsels something very similar. In his day, it had become a custom of the people of Israel to light sacrificial fires to pagan deities. And here's what the prophet had to say in Isaiah 50, verse 11. But now all of you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go, walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you will receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. See, let me ask this question. If you carry on living your life the way you are, what will be the result in the long term? Well, once again, you figured it out. Just carry it on if that's what you are determined to do. 
You see, putting things that way demands each of us begin to consider how we're living our lives. It invites us to take stock and make decisions on what is worth living and dying for. I've often seen people who take stock of their lives, do an inventory of their work, their home life, their leisure time, their vacations, so on and so on. And then to find out that the only thing that matters is what you take with you to eternity. And with that, the book of Revelation and the words of the Bible come to an end. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the morning star, the spirit of the bride, say come. And let the one who hears say come. And at the end of the book, we simply read, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Let's live with an expectation this year. Come Lord Jesus. John, a great series, great things to think about, a great message. But here's the, here's the final question. Okay, after all this week, John, are you ready to predict the date of Jesus' second coming? <laughs> yeah. Well, Ben, I, I fear you'd listen to nothing at all, but <laughs> I know you meant it in jest. And, and it's important for us to develop really two things, isn't it? We need to have this ever-present expectation you know, at any moment, Christ will come back. I mean, we need to, to live and breathe in that air. And at the same time, we need so desperately to say, and it is also possible that perhaps Christ would not come back in a thousand years. Uh, maybe there are things within the eternal uh, purposes of God that he yet has to fulfill. Uh, I don't know. We all don't know. But how important it is to say that in wisdom God has withheld this from us so that we might be about the master's business until he comes. So, yeah, I know. I, it's so tempting for us all to, to think about making predictions, but, but let's rather predict this. Under no circumstances will this world go on forever. Christ will return and redeem his own. Good news. As we conclude this one-week New Year's series, I think we've been able to connect with the main truths that we need to understand about the second coming of Jesus. There's much confusion and error regarding this doctrine, and I'm hopeful that many people listening have been enlightened and rediscovered its importance for their own lives. How we live now is so significant in terms of preparing our hearts and minds for Christ's return. This has been a wonderful study. But be sure to tune in again next week as Dr. Neufeld begins a new five-week in-depth series on Romans chapter 5 to 8. Don't miss part two of The Heart of the Gospel right here on Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. In 1 Peter 1 verse 3 it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. As we begin another year, this verse is a great reminder that whatever happens in our own lives and the world at large, our God is not only sovereign, but he has given us the gift of salvation. We have purpose and a living hope to get us through all of life. So in light of this, and in light of the series we've just heard, let's continue to seek Christ in all things and know Him better through His power and His Word. And let us strive to live our lives faithfully and obediently until He returns. On behalf of Back to the Bible Canada, we wish you a happy new year and God's richest blessing to all. <laughs>